0: We are glad you're here Uh, on the way in. You should have been handed uh, the notes walking into all of our campuses. And if you want to go ahead and get those out, we'll jump into our message here. While you're doing that, let me welcome all of our campuses into our service right now. Lone Tree, Highlands Ranch, Castle Rock, Lakewood, those that are live streaming us and those that will listen later on. Uh, Whether it's next week, next month, whenever you're a part of it, we appreciate you being a part of the greater uh, JFC family. If you're visiting, let me just just quickly recap for you what we're doing. We called our series The Last Six. We're looking at the final week of Jesus' life. and We're looking at six major events that took place during that week and sort of letting those things speak for uh, what Christ would have in, in our mind we think the last thing you would say during your last week on earth would probably be the things you'd want everyone to remember. So we're letting those things ring out. And we've taught over the last several weeks coming into this week uh, with the culmination being this week is the resurrection. So here's what we're going to do. Um, We're going to look at four different versions of the resurrection. Now, I don't mean four different accounts of Christ's resurrection. I'm going to talk to you about four different resurrections we find right during the final time. Two of them during the final week, one of them a little different in time frame, but they all fit to uh, to describe for us uh, more meaning into Jesus' resurrection. So if you want to, grab your notes. We'll jump into this real quick. I used as a launching point John eleven twenty five, 25. And if you know the Bible or have been around it, it may be familiar to you. Uh, unfortunately, it's a really powerful scripture It's a beautiful uh, uh, set of words that Jesus says here. But normally, let me tell you, the only time they get spoken is at a funeral, and that's a shame. And this is what Jesus teaches uh, to um, the sisters of his best friend, Lazarus. Lazarus has died, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. And as Jesus shows up in order to, uh, a miracle takes place, one of Lazarus' sister comes out to him and says, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus' answer to her is, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. You've probably heard that scripture right there. Really, really powerful. Unfortunately, it's usually used at a funeral. And for good reason, I understand it. But if you get, folks, what this weekend is about, that sort of sums up everything that we believe. The Apostle Paul, when he talked about what Christ did for us, said it this way. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead then we are to be pitied above all creatures on earth. Not only have we fooled ourselves, but there's nothing coming afterwards. But here's the truth of the matter. I've been there and looked myself. The tomb is empty. He is alive. No one's fooled anybody. It's a powerful understanding. So what we're going to do, we'll take a look at these uh, three different vignettes and then look at the last one being Jesus' death and resurrection. The first one we're going to start with in your notes, a young man. A young man. Now, I'm going to read to you um, from the Bible this story very quickly. It doesn't take uh, very, very long for me to do this. If you want to follow along in the notes, that's great. Let me show you this real quick. This is not a teaching Bible. Look at how big this is right here. I left the wrong Bible at home. So I said to my daughter, who lives close by, Could you run home and get your NIV Bible for me? And she said, Dad, I'd love to do that. And she brings me back this. And it weighs about seven pounds. Not, it's not an easy Bible to wield around here. So if it looks a little strange, that's what's, uh, that's what's going on. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. If you uh, don't know the Bible well, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. We're going to look at chapter 7, start at verse 11. And three different venues or, or vignettes of the resurrection. And then we'll look at Jesus's. So Luke 7, 11, It says, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called name and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. the only son of his mother and she was a widow. It's an important little fact right there. this is a woman who's already lost her husband. Now she loses her only son, and you get the idea this is not a good situation. This is a desperate situation for a person who probably had no other visible means of support beyond her husband and her son. This is a desperate situation for this woman. Verse 13, when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now I want you to remember that because every time Christ comes across a person who is in deep mourning, weeping, he never tells them, hey, knock it off. Or that doesn't fit with what we're trying to do here. Don't you know that I'm the resurrection and the life? In compassion, he reaches out to dry eyes. Don't cry. He's got another plan that's coming. Verse 14, then he went up and he touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Let me begin by saying there's not a worst funeral guest in history than Jesus. <laughs> if you think about it, as far as protocol goes, he messes up every funeral he ever attends. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do and just mourn. He actually touches the dead and he brings them back to life. Here, when I was studying over the last couple of weeks, I thought it was an interesting way to draw a picture here. From this little town called Nain, you have two processions going on. One's coming out of town, and one's coming into town. One is mourning, and one is sad, and one is literally a funeral dirge. And the other one is Jesus himself with his followers, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the master of life. They're having a celebration, and they're coming into town. And in that point in history, two parties meet. And you talk about polar opposites. One, death, and the other one, life. One full of sadness beyond belief and description. And the other one enjoying everything that God wants for mankind. The Bible teaches that when the two parties met, Jesus and his party yielded out of respect to a funeral. Now, I want you to pick this part up. This woman, this mother, this wife, this widow, the Bible is clear. She doesn't ask Jesus for anything. She doesn't turn to him and say, God, can you? Or Jesus, I hear that you. Would you? Here's my circumstance. Do you understand? She doesn't say. In fact, we don't even know if she recognizes who Jesus is. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But it does say this, that Jesus being moved with compassion for this woman said to her, don't cry. And then he walks up and touches the coffin and speaks eight words. Young man, I say to you, get up. And up this young man gets. If I describe to you a picture, in my mind, it's like two islands that are polar opposites from each other. One is grief, and one is joy. One is death, and one is life. And what's the bridge that brings these two things together? Someone said to me in the last service, it's Jesus. Well, I think we give that answer to about everything. But in this case, it's not true. The bridge that brings these two things together is a mother's grief. This woman in her grief, all that she can do is cry. And Jesus sees her and he's moved with compassion and acts on her behalf. Now that's important for this reason. I hear people when they teach about God and how Jesus interacts with us is that he's always and only moved by our faith. Now, I think that that's true. God is moved by our faith, and faith has an important part in our responding to God and God responding to us. But in this case, that flies in the very face of that theology. This is not a woman full of faith who is asking Christ for anything. This is a woman who is brokenhearted, who can't do anything except cry and look at Christ. And Christ is moved on her behalf, not because she has great faith, but because he has great compassion. And I love to see it from that point of view. I heard a guy teaching just two days ago that if God was moved by human need, then Africa would be one of the most wealthy continents today. And I got what he was saying, that it's not human need that causes the, 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 the wealth of heaven to come to earth. But in reality also, it's not always our ability to get God to do anything that causes God to move on our behalf. He's a compassionate God who loves us, who cares for us, and who responds accordingly. I love that story right there. I think it speaks more of the heart of God than many things we can teach. Remember, Jesus said this about himself on the earth. I don't do anything and I don't say anything that I haven't seen my father do or heard my father say. If you want to know how God feels about any situation, look at Jesus. Because whatever Jesus does reveals to us about how God feels. If you want to know if God cares for you and your situation, look at this right here. Your faith doesn't need to even be activated to have God care about you. He's moved. By your situation. He's a compassionate God. And he's full of care. And he loves you. So the next one is an interesting one. This is a vignette of the resurrection of a little girl. This one's found a little further in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 8. So if you just go to the right, a few pages in your Bible, you'll find our story. It's Luke chapter 8. And I'm going to, I put 53 down in your notes right here, but I'm going to start a little bit before that to give you this story. In verse 40, Jesus comes to an area where he's about to do ministry. He's become very famous at this time, and many people know who he is. The Bible says in verse 40, when Jesus returned to this area, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus... And the Bible gives us this detail, a ruler of the synagogue. In other words, he's very wealthy, he's very well-known, he's very well-to-do. What I like about it is the difference between the widow and this man. Jesus doesn't draw a distinction. He's willing to meet both people right where they are in life, isn't he? I love that. A man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter... A girl who's about 12 years old was dying. The Bible says that Jesus immediately is willing to go to Jairus' house to pray for his daughter. On the way there, though, it begins to tell a story of something that happened to Jesus. There were so many people pressing in around him that he couldn't move. The Bible in one of the gospels says there were so many people he couldn't even get his arms up. And a woman who had been internally bleeding for 12 years walks up behind him and she touches him. And just because she's able to touch him, the Bible says healing, virtue, flowed into her body and she was healed. That's not the story, though, that I want you to concentrate on. After this happens, while Jesus is still trying to get to where this little girl is, verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking to the crowd, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, James, and John, and the little girls, Mom, and Dad. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop crying, Jesus said. She is not dead, but simply asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And look at this. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. In reading this second story about a resurrection, I think it's really interesting to look at the wording that's used when Jesus speaks to the little girl. I tell you, arise. And then it says, her spirit returned to her. Now what I like about that, Jesus at that point begins to let it be known what he understands about things that we don't understand. When we look at death men, we're stuck on this side of the equation. We feel the loss, we feel the separation, we feel the anxiety, we feel the pain. Jesus begins to speak about, listen, this isn't the end. And her spirit returns to her here's a question where was her spirit well we got a couple of interesting scriptures that begin to give us clues about where this little girl was when paul writes about death he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord so there's like no space in time when a person dies to when they're in the presence of god instantly it's simply a portal you're there where was this little girl at? I think she's already in heaven celebrating. Probably safe, sound, and secure, not realizing what everyone here on earth is facing. In the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the ones he loves. It begins to give us this idea that God views death differently than we view death. We're on this side of the equation where it hurts and it doesn't always make sense. He's on the other side, seeing it from a point of view that we don't always understand. And it wasn't until recently that I got a good view of this. So I got five children, two daughters. My middle child is Katie. Katie's the one who brought me the humongous Bible to read from. (laughs) Katie, when she graduated high school went into college, decided to take some time off to go to a discipleship school, Youth with a Mission, YWAM. And she served her mission in Europe, Western Europe, which you may think to yourself, is there a need for the gospel in Western Europe? How about this? They've had it for more than 1,000 years, and in France, less than 1% are Christians. It's a very cold, a very hard place spiritually. She, she was going from college campus to college campus trying to reach out. It's a very godless place. While there, because of the hardship, you know, sometimes when things are harder, we actually dig in deeper. We, we get more out of it when it, when it pays off for us. It. It's not always the easy things that we, we embrace. Sometimes it's the hard things we have to work through and earn and hold on to that we love the most. Man, she went through this really difficult time there and uh, ended up, a lot of people came to know Christ, and she was very successful with her team and what they were doing, and she grew very close to her team, and she loved Europe. At the same time, the internet connection was terrible there. We couldn't ever talk to her. When she would finally get a hold of us, it was middle of the night, we wouldn't hear it, or when we tried to get a hold of her, we couldn't get through to her. We'd go for weeks not knowing how she is, and praying for God, protect her, and keep her safe, and we miss her so much. When she finally gets a hold of us, she's getting ready to come home. And this is what she tells us. Oh, I don't want to leave here. I love these people, and I love this place, and I love my team, and I'm doing so well. And I'm trying to be compassionate. I'm I'm so sorry. But on the other side of it, I'm like, she's coming home. Yes. Chris and I are secretly celebrating. We can't wait for her to come home. Here's what brought this to a point for me. Had a young man in our church that died and had to do his funeral... When you try to explain death, especially to young people, sometimes there are no answers. You're trying to explain it from this side of the equation, and it's hard to have it make sense. And right before I step out to do this funeral, that picture of my daughter runs through my head And here's what I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me. I know she was hurting. And I know that she loved where she was living and the people she was involved with and all that she was doing in her life. But here's the truth. No one had a bigger investment in her than Chris and I. No one knew her like we knew her. No one had done more for her than we had done for her. This is where her home was. This is where her stuff was. This is where she was going to return to at some point and at some time. And as much as I didn't want her to hurt having to leave her friends, I was so excited for her to come home. And it gave me a picture for the first time of how it is for God. It's not that God rejoices that we hurt on this side, but he rejoices that we're coming home to be with him. He waits for that day. He longs for that day. And heaven is not some concept of then and there. Heaven is here and now. And it's a portal that we just simply step through when we go to be with him. It changes everything. Jesus was not incompassionate towards Jairus or Jairus' wife or the people that was there. He just simply understood death in a different way. It's a little girl that's going home so that when he called her back, where did he call her from? Her home. Let me give you the third one that I think is just really a neat understanding. This is Jesus' best friend, Lazarus. This story takes place in all of John chapter 11. It's a long story. It's not concise like the other ones. So for time's sake, I'm going to paraphrase the first part of the story and then I'll read the scripture in the last part of it. But it simply begins like this. The Bible says that Lazarus was sick. Jesus loved Lazarus. It was literally his best friend. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Which Mary and Martha? You remember the story when Jesus had gone to visit Lazarus and Martha was busy trying to get everything clean, cooked, and ready for Jesus, while her sister Mary just came out and sat at Jesus' feet and worshiped him. Martha got mad about that. She said to Jesus, don't you care that my sister's not helping me? Tell her, get up and help me. (laughs) Does that sound like sisters or what? (laughs) Jesus said, Mary has chosen more important thing Martha and I'm not going to take that away from her now this is important because I want you to remember the positions Mary stands face to face and talks to Jesus more like a peer excuse me Martha Mary sits at his feet and worships him like the Lord so Jesus goes to Lazarus's funeral sent because Mary and Martha wanted Christ to come and heal their brother When Jesus first gets to their town, the Bible says that Martha runs out to Jesus and says to him face to face, if you had been here, he'd still be alive. Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll live, even if you die. Then a few moments later, Mary comes out. And she falls at his feet. And this is what she says to him. If you had been here, he'd still be alive. Jesus' response to her, he begins to weep. And he's moved with compassion. Martha got a theological response from Jesus. Mary got Jesus' heart. Which one do you want? What's the difference between the two? Martha only reasoned with him face to face, but Mary worshiped him as Lord, as King, as Savior. Now, the difference between the two is life and death. So what happens in the story? Well, Jesus, when he finds out that Lazarus is sick, waits two more days where he was to make sure that Lazarus is dead. And then he tells his disciples, let's go and see Lazarus. He's sleeping. Remember his metaphor for death? And the disciples say to Jesus, well, if he's sleeping and he's sick, let's not bother him. He needs the rest. Jesus said, he's actually dead, and I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you'll believe what you're about to see. Jesus comes to town. Mary and Martha have their exchange with him. Jesus asks, where is Lazarus buried? And that meant what tomb has he been put in? They point to him where the tomb is and Jesus says, roll away the stone. Martha says to Jesus, he's been dead four days and he stinks by now. Jesus ignores her, walks to the tomb and speaks into the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. So that you can see the scripture, I put it in your notes right here. John eleven thirty eight. Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Look at this. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You know what I like about that right there? It's Jesus who calls a person into life, but he expects us to help them get rid of the stuff that keeps them from being able to experience the life of God. Jesus didn't take the burial clothes off of Lazarus. He called Lazarus into life and then told his friends, now help him walk in the life that I've given to him. Isn't that a powerful understanding? The last one is the one that we all come here today to celebrate, that we know about, that we love to tell the story. This is the resurrection of the Son of God. This one we find back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, powerful story. In my mind, Jesus is not, again, unfamiliar with the resurrection scenario. He's done them multiple times himself. Remember, he doesn't say anything that he hasn't heard God say, and he doesn't do anything that he didn't see God do. You want to know one of the reasons Christ was able to go through this? He knew that God was able to raise him from the dead. He knew I don't know what it sounded like. Was it just like when Jesus spoke into the tomb, Lazarus, come forth? Did the father say that to Jesus? Jesus, come forth. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I like to think it was probably something like one of these other situations where it was just as natural as life itself. I wrote at the bottom of your notes, what would be the takeaway from all of this, from this weekend, from the message? I put four things that I want you to understand that I'd have you leave with this weekend. The first one just simply is this. Jesus has authority over death. In chapter 1, verse 18, it's prophetic scripture, but it's written as though Christ himself said the words. And this is what Jesus said. I hold the keys to death and hell. The enemy of your soul does not hold the keys to death. Jesus does. When we send mankind, we gave the keys to the enemy. But when Jesus came and gave his life and God raised him from the dead, he took the keys back from the enemy. He now holds the key to life and death. The second thing that I think is important, anyone who comes into contact with Christ, look at the words, can live. Not will live, but can live. In John eleven twenty five, 25, remember the words. I'll say them one more time. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. There's a caveat to the life of God. You've got to believe. It's not automatic. The third thing that I want you to take away is this. Eternal life is a relationship with God here and now, not a place then and there. Eternal life is not a destination called heaven. Eternal life is a relationship you have now, and then you step into it with him when you die. how do we know that? Well, Jesus himself in John 17, 3 was asked the question, what is eternal life? And he answered this way. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and your son whom you've sent. And then last but not least, you can have eternal life if you want it. Maybe the most familiar scripture, God, we see it everywhere in our society. If God So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. If you want eternal life, you can have it. The terms, ask God for it. Believe in Jesus. Trust his plan. Believe that it's what he wants for you. Guy, if you were to say, okay, I get to choose eternal life, but what does God want? He can't make it any more clear than he already has. He sent Jesus. He took care of everything that stands in the way, and he offers you the opportunity to be able to choose whether or not you want this life. In a moment, at all of our campuses, we're going to pray. It's as simple as this. I'm not trying to get you to join church, get religion, be a reformer, dress a particular way, talk a particular way, act a particular way, join a group. It has nothing to do with any of those things. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and your son whom you've sent. If you want his life, all you have to do is ask for it by believing. At all of our campuses, I'm gonna pray right now. I'm gonna pray for you. If you want this life, I'll give you a chance to have this life. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you right now and ask that you would make this clear to each person here. God, here's what you said. If Jesus is lifted up, he will draw everyone to himself. Lord, we're not lifting up a church, we're not lifting up a philosophy, we're not lifting up any idea. That's of this world. We're holding up the Son of God right now and asking people whether or not they want eternal life. Here's my question Do you want to know the God that I just described in these little vignettes? The God who is moved with compassion, the God who loves you, and the God who cares for you, and the God that's made it possible? for you to have eternal life. If you do, then all you have to do is ask for it. So, pastor, what do I say? There's not a particular way to say it. It's just to simply say it from the sincerity of your heart. God, have mercy on me. God, help me. God, I believe in you. Any of those things, coming to him and asking him, are acceptable. What I'd like to do is provide the opportunity for you to pray. I'm going to ask all of our campuses to do this all together at one time. Everyone in here, I want you just to follow after me in this prayer. If you need this life, then I want you to pray this from the sincerity of your heart. Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I believe in you. I need your life I want to know you forgive me in my sin and be merciful to me in Jesus name it literally is as simple as that there's not a formula or a feeling or a manipulation that has to happen for God to respond it's as simple as going that's what I believe and I need. And even if you don't understand everything about it, it's the starting place of saying, God, help me. Now here's what we've done in preparation if you prayed that prayer and need his life today. On your way out, all of our exits, we'll have people standing and they're holding on to this booklet. This is literally how to have a relationship with God. It'll be the most important thing that you can grab and read in the next 24 hours. I'm gonna encourage you that if you today said, I needed that life, I need God, I need that relationship, then I want you to grab this information on your way out. Now look, the impetus has to be on you. Nobody was watching and nobody knows who it is. So we've got to give this literally back to you and to say if you prayed that prayer and need that relationship, On your way out, grab this information. It literally will change your life. You need this. I'm going to do this, invite all of our worship pastors to come at all of our campuses. They're going to take this last song. We'll close it out with a time of just celebrating what God's done for us. Go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll let our worship pastors have our services.